Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Hey, for the final time, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. We have been in a series on the book of Acts for almost since we started the church, basically. Uh, it's, been, it's been over a year. I, was, I went back and I looked at when I gave the first message, and it was in like early, early 2019. I was like, oh, the glory days, the pre-COVID days. And um, we are closing out uh, the book of Acts and our series in Acts this evening in Acts chapter 28. And as I was reading this this week, as I was studying and, and thinking about this moment, um, I, I sort of had the same feeling that I had when I went to see the Downton Abbey movie. Did anybody of you guys see that movie? Yeah? How many of you have ever seen Downton Abbey? Just raise your hand. Well, that's a pretty broad cultural reach. That's good. I appreciate that. Across the pond. And, and, I, and as I was going to see this Downton Abbey movie, I remember just having this feeling of, I'm going to say goodbye to some of my favorite people in the world. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to say goodbye to some of my closest friends. And uh, so for now, we're saying goodbye to Paul. We're saying goodbye to some of our favorite characters, some of the people who, as we've looked at church history, as we've looked at the first century, they have been the biggest movers and shakers in the church. So Paul has finally made it to Rome. If you know the story, uh, he, he has been kind of leveraging the Jews' hatred of him to get himself to Rome. And finally he gets <clears throat> to Rome. And the first place that he goes is to the Jews of Rome, to his Jewish brothers and sisters in Rome. So look down at your Bibles. Uh, chapter 28, verse 17 says this. Three days later, he being Paul, called together the local Jewish leaders in Rome. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me, and they actually wanted to release me because I wasn't guilty of any crime deserving death. But the Jews objected. So I was compelled. This is the opportunist in Paul. I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've, this is why I'm asking you to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this chain. They replied, we've not received any letters from Judea concerning you, which is actually kind of an interesting just historical side note. It's like, you would think that if Paul was causing such a stir in Judea, they'd be like spreading letters all around the world, like watch out for this guy. But they're like, we, we haven't heard any letters concerning you, but they have heard of his message. And we'll get to that in just a second. And none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But pay attention to this. We want to hear what your views are, for we know that people 
everywhere are talking against this sect. They're speaking against Christians. Verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. And here's the final statement that they began to leave after. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through the Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. As I uh, read this and, and as I, I thought about this passage, um, I, I just thought this is a sunset picture of a man being used by God. It's almost like the drone shot just like slowly ascending and leaving Paul there in his apartment in Rome doing kingdom work. And, and, and we don't actually know, the story doesn't tell us, we don't know if he ever got to speak to Caesar, although later when writing a letter to the Philippian church from Rome, Paul wrote this. He said, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household which is this really amazing statement. Apparently, he had made friends with people in Caesar's household and even saints in Caesar's home. But the point that I I want to make tonight is a very simple point. You have to imagine Paul being in Rome for two whole years, renting his own apartment there. You have to imagine that there are those off-chance moments, maybe as dusk is just uh, hitting the city of Rome, that he reflects on all the events that brought him to this place. All the moments of his life that led up to this moment here in the city of Rome, this, and the, the biggest city, the most influential city in the world. The, the, the moment maybe when he first heard of this crucified Messiah who people thought was the savior of the world. His approval of the killing of Christians, standing, watching Stephen be stoned and approving of it. Maybe he thought, and probably most certainly, he thought of the encounter with the resurrected Christ being knocked off his horse and blinded uh, by, by just witnessing Jesus himself. And then what followed that, the passion, the zeal, the energy that he had, the power, it was like nothing that he had ever experienced before. Planting churches, creating these communities, the building these friendships, the risk and, and the reward of all of that. You can imagine that maybe in those moments his mind would move to all that he's lost throughout his pursuit the friends in high places that he once had in in predominantly Jewish circles that he's no longer connected with, 
um, his hometown that he's probably not welcome in anymore. Uh, respectability, certainly he left that a long time ago. And I'm sure that as he thinks on all of these things, he likely would have chuckled with tears entering his eyes and he would have remembered the words of his Messiah, of his King. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I think this is really the central message of the book of Acts, and I think it's really the central message of Paul's life. Lose your life. Lose your life. And then, only then, will you find it. See, the kingdom does not happen without people losing their lives. It's not produced without people losing their pursuit of life. See, life for most people in our culture is a constant search, a constant searching for life. Every person is in need of specific things, and those things change based upon what they perceive their need is, right? So you're very familiar with, for probably most of you, here's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? At the bottom of the pyramid, the first thing that everybody is going to pursue as human beings, even what God created us to pursue, are physiological needs. It's like, I need food. I need a place that can shelter me from sun and from rain and wind, right? And once we have those physiological needs met and we're secure in those things, we can move up to the next thing, safety. Do I have a lock on the door of my house? Am I actually able to protect the things that are keeping me alive, the physiological things that I have? Once we have that figured out, we have social needs, relational needs, connection needs, a, a desire to be known and to, to know other people. Once that's met, we move to the esteem level. It's like, how, do I, how can I know that I'm proud of myself? Am I doing work in the world that really matters? This is probably where a lot of us are. Am I actually producing things that are of benefit to other people? It, it, is, does my life have any purpose? And then the final step is self-actualization. It, it's, it's this figuring out identity. Who am I? What have I been designed for? And in our culture, because we have so much of this pyramid figured out, we have so much of this pyramid already dialed for our lives, we have so many basic needs provided, we normally spend our time arguing about and discussing and pursuing the good life. What is self-actualization? How do I get it? How do I pursue it? What is my purpose? Where am I going to find it? We live in a world where the wealthiest in our world are often the most disappointed by life and, and the biggest searchers for life. My, my wife and I just watched the college admissions scandal. Have any of you guys watched this? Okay, it's crazy. It's crazy because these are people who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And they are trying to get their children into elite schools. And there's these educators that are saying, you know, all of these elite schools, all of the Ivy schools, uh, USC, UCLA, Stanford, all these elite schools offer a very similar education to most colleges in the United States. But they offer one extra thing, status. And so there's this desire, this pursuit to self-actualize. If my kid, I can't let my, I don't want my kid to know that I'm pulling strings, but if they can end up there, they maybe can self-actualize. 
they can maybe have the identity, the status that they are searching for. And, and the result of this, the result of this pursuit of, of the, the top of the pyramid has essentially been a cult of authenticity in our culture. A cult of authenticity. The core tenet of this religion is that the material world is plastic. That's what those parents are doing. They're manipulating the material world to get a spiritual and internal result for their children. It's the material world is plastic. It's the inner world. It's the world of the mind that's really fixed. And everything around us is or should be bendable to that reality. This is why, and I'm not trying to make any kind of statement here, but this is why somebody who is born female or male can believe or feel internally that they're supposed to be the opposite gender. And our culture is then supposed to bend to their reality, to agree with their internal reality. See, it is in the excess of the pursuit of life pursuing your life, pursuing that self-actualization, that we get so confused, we end up disconnecting the soul from the body. The body is nothing. It's something to be bent to what I sense internally. <clears throat> this goes beyond the body. It goes beyond the individual. See, the pursuit of life, if you are pursuing life, is really the pursuit of all the correct circumstances clicking, almost like gears in a watch, clicking in congruence with our internal reality. So it's, I need the right home. I need to manipulate my circumstance to get the correct home. I need the right friends. I, I need to, I just, these friends, none of them are really that cool. I need those friends. It's, I need the right followers. I need the right experiences. I need the right materials in my life. And, and we subtly imbibe from our culture that when all of those things are really working right, then we'll really be living. Then I'll really have life. But my question to our, our world, and, and my question to us this evening is, how is it going? Are you at peace? Have you self-actualized? Did all, in all of your manipulating of the world around you, has it produced the results you thought it would? Or have you found that you increasingly need your world to cooperate for you to feel okay inside? Do you find that your pursuit of life requires the control of other people's thoughts and actions? <laughs> see, see let, me, let me just ask you a question. Which individual is more powerful? The person who needs the world to bend to their personal view of self? Or... The person who died to self and is able to be whatever God calls them to be, to serve anyone, to control no one on a mission of love. Who's more powerful? Who's more insulated to the woes and whims of this world? Might I suggest that Paul lived so much because he had died so much. I want to draw your attention to two uh, different verses. The first one's in verse 21. Look down at your Bibles. These are the Jews speaking. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. They're not gossiping about you. Verse 22, but we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. 
Next verse, skip down to verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there on his own, in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So just to be clear, the very thing people everywhere are speaking against, he is proclaiming with boldness. I don't know about you, but if I have an opinion, and this is the case for some of my opinions, if I have an opinion that people everywhere are speaking against, I don't really talk about it. Do you? <laughs> and let alone, I don't proclaim it with boldness. <laughs> so what does this mean? Paul has so lost his life that no one can control him. They're like, people everywhere are speaking against this. He's like, hmm, two years, I'm going to proclaim it with boldness. See, the great secret of pursuing your own is that the pursuit of controlling the outcomes in your life sets you up to be controlled instead. You're like, what? The very things or people that you aim to control in your life can end up controlling you. They can live rent-free in your mind. You end up taking on the metrics for success that the culture defines. You end up being quiet about the kingdom. You end up self-censoring. Why? Because you need the culture. You need the world. You need the people around you to validate you. Because you have so not lost your life, you haven't found it, so you live with a lack in your identity that has to be made up somehow. So you control the people around you, but they actually end up controlling you. you before you make a decision to, to pursue this career, or before you make a decision to date this person, or before you make a decision to wear those pants, there are people in your mind that you go and you check with in your imaginary world before you choose to make whatever it is that you're going to do. So you're like, declare it with boldness. Oh, people are speaking against it. I don't know if I'm going to do that. Because you've become addicted to the world around you approving of you. I find that this is a point of tension specifically for Christians today. We want the culture to like us. Right? We want the culture to be okay with us. People my age, and there's a number of you here, people my age, and those of you who are older, you'll probably remember this as well, were brought up with a relevance posture to the world. Remember that? There's even like a magazine called Relevant Magazine. Um, and essentially, here was kind of the message of the relevance posture to the world. Hey, world, it's Christians here. We, we are really sorry about the 80s. And um, the whole moral majority thing, oh, we are so sorry. Um, but hey, look, um, we have lights now. And um, we have, we have uh, electric guitars now. And um, our music, it's like worse than your music, but it's not that much worse. I mean, maybe... Um, Please like us. We're cool, right? I mean, we have Justin Bieber now. And 
And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe even chance. This has been our message to the world, and the message of the world is people everywhere are speaking against you. Now, I want to make sure that they're speaking against us for the right reasons. There's some reasons to speak against Christians, for reals. But I think that even if we accurately displayed the love of God and accurately displayed the power of God, people everywhere would still be speaking against those who believe. See, the problem is that this attitude is on the defense when we were designed as disciples to be on offense. I, I really think, because I, I, I have compassion for this perspective, I grew up in it, I really think it was the primary reason why I rejected Christianity as a child. I just didn't want to be different. I just looked at the world and I was like, my friends don't go to this place on Sunday. They don't have to dress up on Sunday. I just, I'm like, I, I'm wearing pleated slacks as an eight-year-old. I don't want to do this. And I remember, you know, you, you would just feel awkward. Like you're at the gas station after church and you're like, yeah, you can tell we probably were at church, huh? You know, and it's like, I just didn't want to feel different. I hated the outward appearance of being different than everybody else. And I think many people, even in my generation, felt that as well. It's where the relevance posture came from. But, but here is the choice. Drown in the pursuit of relevance, the pursuit of your own life, or really live, even though you may be misunderstood or even hated. That's the choice that Christians have today. I realized a number of years ago while I was working at Bridgetown, I realized, no matter what, Christians are going to be weird. Like, I would, every Sunday I'd get up there and I would, I would do the communion. I did the communion all the time, and so I'd, I'd stand up there and we'd all receive communion together. And I was like, there's no way to make this cool. You're going to drink a little mini thing of juice, and you're going to believe that it's his blood, and then you're going to eat a little cracker, and you're going to believe that it's a first century man's body. That's weird. It's like no skinny jean or boot will make that better. <laughs> See, Christians will always be different, and we should be. We either have something so different that it requires a whole new life to see it, or we don't have it. And so much of our gospel proclamation as believers has been a half gospel. It's sort of good news because we've only died half deaths. It's like, hmm, lose your life and find it. How about I lose half of it? It's like, well, you get half the power. See, it's die so that you can really live. And this is what Paul proclaimed. It's the good news. It's actually what our culture is longing for. They're hungry for this. Deep down, we all know or we discover at some point that the add-ons, the upgrades, the new app will not alter this life enough to save us. We need a whole new life, a whole new focus. We need a whole new rebirth. And so our message to our coworkers and to our friends and to our families is that there is a cost of staying the same. It's not, there's no neutral like, I could lose my life and find it. No, 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 you're gonna just lose your life. There's a cost of unconscious discipleship. 
Everyone's going to be a disciple. The only choice that you get is of whom. Everybody's going to be a follower. The only choice you get is of whom. See, imagine this for a moment. Maybe close your eyes, and I want you to imagine this. Imagine a river, a rushing river, a powerful river. And I want to tell you that that river is a culture. It could be the culture in Zimbabwe. It could be the culture in Thailand. But I want you to imagine that it is this culture that we exist in here in the West. If you were to go swim in that river, there's really nothing that you can do but get swept away by that river. That river's going somewhere, and it's going to take you with it should you put yourself in it. There's no staying neutral in this river. You get in the water, and you're going to go somewhere. You're going to become something. It's what every voice Every media, every book, every story online aims to do. It's aiming to take you somewhere. It's aiming to shape you. I don't mean to make you paranoid. You're like, everything? Yeah, everything. There's no neutral space. Either you're losing your life and finding it, or you're in the river. that You thought it was a lazy river going nowhere, but it's actually taking you and shaping you into a whole person. You can open your eyes if you kept them closed. See, there will be a cost to that. Whatever the voice in your life, whatever the voice you're imbibing worships, you will find yourself spending more time and more money on the things that that voice worships and values. There may be values in your life that you deeply held things, and today you're going, what happened to all the things that I used to care about? What happened to all the things that I once prioritized? I was like, I don't think I, was there any big moment where I, it's like, oh, I've allowed specific voices to shape my value system, and I've spent less time feeding the values that I once had. See, it's a very simple message tonight from the life of Paul. Your life will proclaim a kingdom. Whose will it be? Your life looks like something. Whose kingdom does it look like? So so here's my charge to you as we've looked at the book of Acts. My charge to you is this. Display his kingdom. Display his kingdom. I, I, as I was reading this passage, I, I had a question come up that I'm guessing it's a question that you didn't have. And maybe you did, if you did, kudos. But I had this question. Here's my question about this passage. How the heck did Paul afford a house in Rome for two years? For two whole years, he afforded an apartment in Rome? <laughs> The New York City of the day, that had to be expensive, right? And I'm thinking like, okay, maybe Paul had some donations come in. Like he talks about people who like funded his ministry and, and all that. But, but remember this, Paul had a trade. Paul did not have my job. He had your job. Paul had a job. It was making tents. So you have to see that he's the same as you. You have a job which means you have an audience. You have a dorm, which means you have an audience. You have a roommate, which means you have an audience. And here is the reality that you have been given. You have the ability to proclaim the kingdom of God, like Paul did. It says this, verse 31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
in a world that is increasingly looking to the experts, I'm tired of the word expert, but in a world that's looking, increasingly looking to the world, to experts, it can be tempting to believe that ministry is what experts do. Pastors, leaders, authors, that's what those guys do. But with Jesus, he doesn't allow us to hire respectable professionals to do ministry for us. I'm not even a professional. I'm a child. I'm a son. I'm just the same as you. Jesus doesn't allow you to witness the ministry of other people and call it good. He requires that you have your own ministry. Each of you has your own ministry. You have your own audience. You have your own job. You have your own family. So let's go back to the basics. So basic. What what did the people in the family of God do? Genesis chapter 12. We're blessed to then be a blessing. This is what Paul's doing. He's blessed as he looks back over his life, as he looks back up all that he lost, but all that he gained. He's blessed so that he can be a blessing. See, in the kingdom, there's both cost, but there's also reward. And it would be foolish to emphasize one of these over the other. As you look down through church history, you can see different communities and churches and movements that emphasize one or the other. But in the kingdom, it is both. There's the blessing of others. It's the pouring out. It's the cost of discipleship. It's, I'm going to serve. And then there's the filling. There's the reward. I'm also, it's because I've been blessed. I'm blessed to then be a blessing wherever I go. You may lose your life. But in Christ, you will find it. It's, it's ancient. It's been this way. Jesus, he, he puts it this way in, in Matthew chapter six. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, to proclaim the kingdom, there's a relationship of trust that's required. You give up the pursuits of your life. You give up the toys, the comfort, the security, the pursuit of those things and you place everything that you have all your intention into pursuing his kingdom. And when you do that, there's reward. All these things are added to you as well. Now, what are all those things? Well, in context, if we had time to read that whole passage, it's all the stuff that makes life uh, enjoyable. It's all the stuff that makes life livable. It's clothing, it's food, it's his provision here on earth. The New Testament doesn't put us into a place where it says, hey, don't want clothing, don't want food, don't care about all those earthly things. No, it simply redirects where we get them from. When you're pursuing your own life, all the things that you accumulate war to become, to, they war for the seat of kingship in your heart. I, 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 this, is, this is my life, and so I don't want to put this on you, but, but I sense that maybe there's some of you who can resonate with this. I feel like for Christians, some of us, if we're pursuing our life at the same time that we're pursuing his, there's a constant tension in our hearts for who gets to be king. You were not designed to live with that tension. You were designed for him to win out. And for everything else to not become worshipped, but beca- to become enjoyed because he provided it. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this. As for the rich in this present age, we're all rich, okay? Sometimes you're like, oh, like Jeff Bezos? No, no, no. As for the rich in this age, this is us. We have, did you know how much of that pyramid we have taken care of? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the, notice this, the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
here's the, my favorite part of this passage, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. <laughs> when you are pursuing your life, guess what you can't do? Enjoy it. You're constantly trying to protect it. You're constantly trying to get more. You're, you're constantly on what's called the hedonic treadmill. There's never enough. I need the next thing. I need that thing. I need that experience. I need that person. I need that status. But when you don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, you enter into that seek first the kingdom relationship, what happens? He richly provides you with everything to enjoy. We in the church have made this kind of dichotomy of there, there's those who are really holy and they go without. And then there's those who are like prosperity gospel. Ugh. It's not a helpful dichotomy. I'm sure there's people in both camps, but it's not a helpful dichotomy. There's no dichotomy. It's just simply relationship. It's just simply trust. And, and, and the more that you trust him, the more you begin to see his provision in your life. There's an order in this kingdom. It's trust God for provision and watch him richly provide. Watch how much purpose he gives to your work. Watch the, the quality of relationships he brings into your life. Watch the kind of peace and joy that you'll enjoy from his presence. This is the call from the book of Acts. It's lose your life and you will find it in him. Let's all stand together and respond. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier.